It's good to be back with you this morning. I say back with you because my family and I weren't here uh, last Sunday. We are worshiping up in Linden uh, with my uh, father, uh, who is uh, just as a matter of personal privilege on the cusp of retirement, and uh, likely we'll be seeing him more and more in the months uh, to come, which is a good thing. Um, I plan to get him in this pulpit once or twice, but not until he's had a good rest after retirement hits him. But it's good to be back with you this morning. I want to thank Pastor Ed and uh, Austin for their leadership last week in my absence. If you would, turn with me once again in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter, we're now several weeks into this study of uh, this first century letter written to the churches of Asia Minor, a letter that also speaks to us today as the living word of God. And the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Peter has already spoken to us here at Ascension, reminding us of our identity as exiles in this world, exiles as a result of the work of the triune God. He has sought to stir our hearts to worship as he's reminded us of this grand story of mercy and grace that calls us, his people, to a different story. And so as we've looked through just the first several verses of chapter one, of First Peter chapter one. There have been some words that kind of have risen to the top. Words like exile and hope and worship and two weeks ago, story. And though it wasn't my intention to keep on this train of, of giving you words, it, it happened again. I've got another word for us this morning to frame this chapter. We're kind of walking through this chapter and kind of looking at every angle of this beautiful diamond that is 1 Peter chapter 1. And as we move to a different angle of this diamond, this word will help us guide, will help guide us this morning. It's the word family. It's the word family. Listen as I read. Stand if you're able. Uh, we're going to read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through chapter 2, verse 1. Listen as I read. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, 
like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Forgive me for doing this with lunch still a ways away. Sweet potatoes with orange juice plumped raisins and lightly toasted marshmallow topping. Ooh, that's Thanksgiving. Worship at church, dinner out at a local restaurant, and then a brand new set of pajamas. That's Christmas Eve. Waiting until everyone else has opened a gift before moving on to your next gift. That's Christmas morning. What are these? These are Hitchcock family traditions uh, that are imminent for us once again this year. Can you believe it's already November? The holidays are around the corner. You have your own family traditions don't you? Your own dishes that you love and expect on Thanksgiving, things that in small and subtle ways define your lives together as a family. If you're part of our family, this is what being part of our family partly looks like. This is what you do. This is how you act. Family traditions. Well, I bring this up this morning because Peter brings it up. Because Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, chooses to frame these next verses that he speaks to the church of Jesus Christ with familial language. Did you see it? Did you hear it? With language that seems to say, as part of this new family, people of God, here is how things are done. This is what is required of you. Look with me, verse 14, he says, as obedient children, literally we might say children of obedience. This isn't an action that is being asked for as much as it's an assumption that is being made about our identity. We are children of obedience. It's not obedience that makes you children, it's that as children you, are, you obey, that's what you do. Verse 17, if you call on him as father, 
And this is held in contrast to ways that you inherited from your forefathers. Verse 18. And then in verse 22, for a sincere brotherly love. It's all familial language that points, as we looked to uh, two weeks ago, that points not only to a different story, but to a new family, to a new way of life, to a new set of family traditions that flow from who your father is and what he has done. Not just a new history, but literally a new way to be human. It's all wrapped up under the fatherhood of God. Brothers and sisters, the fatherhood of God is such a crucial thing for us to understand and believe and live from. And I recognize it's hard for many of you because your earthly fathers were not examples, good examples for you which makes it all the more crucial that you understand truly the character of your heavenly Father. Listen to this quote by J.I. Packer. He's a theologian and author. He's a teacher from Regent College up in British Columbia. This is from his book, Knowing God. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that is distinctly Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. And of course he's right. What other religion or faith tradition leans on this intimate notion of the creator of the universe being our father and we his, his children, his sons and his daughters? And so in much the same way that we say, if you're a Hitchcock, this is what Hitchcocks do. Peter is saying to the church, you're a Christian now. Remember, this is written to young first century believers in the Roman Empire. You're a Christian now. This is what Christians do because this is who your father is. And not just that, not just that he's an example to follow but your life flows entirely from his. And your life flows entirely towards him, towards his glory. So as we walk through this passage and focus this morning on the Father, I want us to focus on three things about the Father that are spoken of here that in turn motivate our identity as exiles, as Christians. The first one is this. You have a father who is holy. It's the first point Peter wants to make. You have a father who is holy. Now we hear a lot 
of that word in our circles, if you've been in the church for any length of time, but I wanna make sure we understand what we're saying or what we're singing. Maybe you have a picture in your mind of, of God high and lifted up, exalted on his throne, and around him are those winged creatures, and he's constantly attended by the words, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and Isaiah cries out, I am a man of unclean lips, I am undone, and then we have in the New Testament Simon Peter the author of this very letter gets a glimpse of the holiness of Jesus when he's in the boat and Jesus performs this miracle and Peter cries out to Jesus and says depart from me for I am a sinful man O Lord And so we have this transcendent view of holiness existing in another that we don't see. We have this imminent view of holiness in a boat on the Sea of Galilee 2,000 years ago. But what's the common denominator between them? It is the realization not simply that God is more powerful than they, though he is, but that God is completely separate from sin. And that it's his purity and it's his righteousness that is our undoing. Both in Isaiah's case as well as in Peter's case. Now that's heavy stuff. And indeed, the Hebrew word for holy even sounds heavy, kadosh. It's one of those words that sounds like what, is, like what it is. See, God's holiness is not just an attribute of God, like we might say God is, is beauty or God is wisdom or God is majestic. No, the reality is that God's holiness is essential to all those things. His wisdom is a holy wisdom. His beauty is a holy beauty. His majesty is a holy majesty. One commentator said it this way, his holiness adds glory, luster, and harmony to all his other perfections. And so in the revelation of God and the scriptures in the Old Testament, God was symbolized throughout the Old Testament through these elaborate ceremonies of cleansing and washing, right? To communicate to his people and to the nations around them that God was not like them. That Yahweh was completely different, completely righteous, completely pure. And in fact, we, we see more than once that God rebukes his people for their disobedience or rebellion, and, and he does so with this phrase, you thought that I was like you. But Yahweh is not like us. He's separated from sin. He's devoted solely to his honor, for there is no greater thing to honor and yet, holiness is always what he has desired for his people. 
that they too, that you too, that me too, that we would be separated from sin and solely devoted to his honor. And so in the Old Testament, God set things and people and places apart. He made them holy to remind the people not only of who he is, but to prod them to be who they are. Listen, Leviticus 19, verse 2, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 27 and 8, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Leviticus 20, verse 26, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. And so Peter is saying to this New Testament church, Jew and Gentile, that things haven't changed from God's holy, set-apart people, Israel. But no, as members of God's family, as children of a father who is holy, this is who you are. This is what you are called to be. Jesus is not content to let you live as you please. And this isn't, this isn't a matter of do's and don'ts. No, this is God calling you to his good design for you as his creatures. Your father is holy, therefore be like dad. Be like your father. Now, living a life of, of holiness is a huge topic. A huge topic that not only takes up the rest of the letter of Peter, but it encompasses all of the Bible. Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' words there. The epistles of Paul and his teaching about Christian living there. Peter's not going to unpack all of that. He's going, to, he's going to return to some very pointed applications of this life of righteousness and being set apart from the world. But just for now, he wants you to hear, conform your thinking. Remember, that's where he began. Gird, gird up the loins of your mind. Conform your thinking, and now conform your conduct, your behavior to God's character as those who are living in covenant with God and those who are therefore set apart from the world. You have a Father who is holy, and so be like Him. And whatever those passions and those futile ways of your past in the world were, Peter will give us more specifics, as I said. Materialism, violence, hedonism, immodesty, whatever it is, leave them behind because of the holiness of your Father. That's where we begin, and that's the foundation, but there's also, there's also motivation here in this familial picture, in this familial language because not only do you have a father who is holy, but you have a father to be feared. You have a father to be feared. And many of you have met my mother. My mother is pretty short. And there came a time in my growing years in my adolescence where my physical presence 
began to dwarf her, and as a child who, I'm ashamed to say, dabbled in disrespect and rebellion at times, when we got into conflicts, my physical presence was no match for her. It's about that time when I heard, and I probably heard it before, when I heard this phrase a lot, just wait until your father gets home. You ever heard that phrase? You ever used that phrase? Just wait until your father gets home. It was a phrase that was used to instill fear in me, and it worked. It was not terror. I knew my dad would not hurt me, but it was fear nonetheless. Fear because I knew that my dad knew how to deal with me. That my dad knew how to discipline me. And his disappointment and displeasure in me was devastating. You see, couched in this package of familial language, Peter reminds the church in verse 17 that our Father is a judge to be feared. Now, this notion of fearing God is all over the scriptures. I picked just a couple out. Psalm 34, 9, David says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Isaiah 33, the Lord is exalted. He dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. It's a treasure, the fear of the Lord. You see, this isn't dread. The fear of the Lord, the fact that we have a father who is to be feared means that we have a reverential awe that we need to cultivate in our lives. And so, in a general sense, when Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear, he is calling the church to this persistent reverence that recognizes every day that God is God and we are not. But this, this tie to judgment maybe is a little unsettling and requires some explanation. What kind of judgment is he talking about? We have a, a judge, a father who is a judge who needs to be feared. Well, let me begin by saying what Peter is not saying to the church. He is not saying to those who are in Christ. He is not saying that you need to live your life in fear in case you might be sent to hell. That's not what Peter is saying to the church. As one pastor, I think, accurately states, this is, this is family talk, right? This is a letter to the church, to the people of God. Peter knows that. If you are in Jesus, then God's guilty verdict has already been pronounced. You need not fear condemnation. Your judge is your savior. Praise God. John 3, 18, whoever believes in him 
That's Jesus is not condemned. Romans 8, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the joy of the gospel that we've been singing about and relishing in this morning as his people, as the redeemed. In Jesus, we move from a fearful emotion of a terror before God to calling God our friend and our Father. So what is this fear of judgment then that Peter is talking about in in his letter? It's one of two things, and it's quite possibly best understood as as a combination of both of these things, right? I feared my dad as a young boy. I feared my dad coming home and learning of my disobedience because I feared his discipline which was never pleasant, believe me, but it was always for my good, and I feared his displeasure upon learning what I had done. And there is no doubt that the scriptures speak of the Lord disciplining his children. Not only are there direct consequences to sin for our disobedience, but at times there are even indirect consequences. For instance, Paul told the church in Corinth that some of them were sick, some of them were physically ill because they were taking the Lord's Supper in a flippant manner. Now that's scary, that's fearful. God disciplines because he loves, as my father did. But as Hebrews says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so fear of discipline motivates holy living, but also there is a fear of future accounting. And yes, our verdict is secure. But the scriptures also teach that at the end of all things, our deeds will be on display. Our faithfulness will be on display. Our heavenly reward will in some way be proportionate to our stewardship. Jesus teaches this in the parable of the tenants in Matthew 25, where he says to, where the master says to his servant, you have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. And Jesus concludes this story saying, for to everyone who has been giving more, he will have an abundance. And so it's that fear of future accounting to our father that motivates holy living, and that encompasses living in fear during our time of exile. As Proverbs 8, 13 says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Fear is powerful. We talked about it a couple weeks ago in our discipleship hour class when we're talking about evangelism and the blockers that we experience in our lives in regards to sharing Fear is powerful, and it's often fear of man that drives us rather than reverential fear of who our Father is. Peter calls us and reminds us to learn to cultivate the fear of the Lord. 
a father who burns white hot with purity and holiness, a father who is a righteous judge. And as we close, we can do all this because undergirding all of this is what's at the heart of this passage. It's the last thing about your father. You have a father who loves, who loves. This life of holiness and fear is built ultimately on the foundation of your redemption, on the gospel. Peter Peter can't get away from it as he's writing this. Verse 18, knowing, knowing that you were redeemed and ransomed, that you were born again through the word of the gospel, this powerful word that has created new life in you that has spoken a new identity over you. All of this has come to you through the lamb without blemish, the precious blood of Jesus. And what does he say? He says, this wasn't wasn't plan B. This wasn't a last ditch effort by God. This was something that was planned before the world even began. And it was something that was confirmed by his resurrection from the dead in power and in glory, seen by hundreds and hundreds. This is the reason for your faith and your hope. And this is all motivational gospel language. Saying love like that produces love like that. Love that is earnest, love that is selfless, love that sacrifices, love that strives to put away, and he gets into some of the specifics, everything that taints our relationships, things like malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, the backbiting that we do with one another because we're not secure in our Father's love for us, and we don't see his children as he sees his children. So Peter says, let the love that God has shown you in Christ, let that love be your love for one another. It's the only way you can obey. But in Christ you can. Through the power of the gospel you can. And as members of this holy family, you must Oh, you know well as I do that holiness is not attainable in this life, that this is a constant striving that will consume all of our lives. But brothers and sisters, Peter is reminding us that this is the fruit of a living hope, responding to God's love for us in Jesus, empowering us to live an otherworldly life of love, of fear, of holiness, all because of our Father. Let's pray.